So many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. My title is Baptized into Jesus Christ. The church at Rome surely knew this. They surely had been taught this fundamental truth, but Paul's language suggests that they had lost sight of this. Do you not know? Paul would ask, which strongly implies at least they had lost memory of what baptism was portraying, symbolizing, and representing. Today we'll have two baptisms. So this gives us an opportunity to talk about this basic truth of the Scripture. And three things you should always do every time you observe a baptism. It should be a time of reflection. What does this mean to me personally in relation to Jesus Christ? Have I been baptized? Secondly, remembering. What are the implications of that singular one-time act on me today, because Paul apparently believes that there are, if he's bringing it up again to a church that had been baptized in the past. What are the implications for you? And then thirdly, what will you do today to change in order to reflect in your renewal of this reality? What kind of impact is it going to have on you today that if change is in order, I wish I could say that I I, I didn't need to change anymore, but I do. And so... What is God saying to us in this great reality of what baptism is portraying when we see it and observe it, this ordinance of the church? So one, using the words newness of life, Paul will teach that first it's a new profession. It's a new profession. Baptism is a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's an ordinance of the church, which simply means it's a command. You may say, well, there's a lot more commands in the Bible than just that one. But there are only two commands that visibly portray dramatically the gospel. That's communion and the Lord's Supper. And those two ordinances can only be carried out by the church as a whole. So it's the only two church ordinances. It's the only two required by the whole church to perform, along with the only two that visibly show us a drama of the gospel. Communion is to be together, always. And the only reason someone is baptized is not because I say they can be, it's you affirm their faith in Jesus Christ by vote. So it's the only two ordinances or commands, the rest of them, you do individually. Some of them we do as a church, but it's not visibly displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a public profession that first on the church's side of things, we affirm and portray a person's conversion that they've come to faith in Christ. And it relates something in this text about Jesus Christ and that relationship. From the believer's perspective, first the church is going to authorize the immersion of the candidate. Baptizo means to submerge or immerse. That's why we do it that way, because Scripture speaks of it that way. It's commanded in Matthew 28, make disciples, teach all nations. That's a comparative mood. Baptizing them, which means the command to make disciples, annexed with it is the submersion of disciples into the watery grave. Baptizo is used of vessels sinking underwater, ships going in the water at sea, or men drowning at sea, all clearly conveying an immersion. So we just need to know why we do that, right? So the church authorizes the immersion of the candidate underwater and then to come back out of the water. We don't hold them down there. No drowning in baptism, God willing. Thirdly, from the believer's perspective, it is a profession publicly. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done on my behalf, and I unite with the church, the local community, in serving Christ and following Him. Now in the Bible, profession and confession publicly is encouraged by Jesus Christ and the apostles. Matthew 10.32, when Jesus is talking to His disciples, His apostles, He said, Whosoever shall confess Me before men... 
him also will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him also shall I deny before my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus encourages, based on the sovereignty of God, every sparrow is known when it falls by the Father. Therefore, whosoever shall confess. So he's giving them a strong platform in which to confess, which sometimes we would have to admit we're afraid to do. Has anybody ever been afraid to own the name of Christ in public? Surely we struggle with that. Not a hair of your head shall fall to the ground without your father. Your hairs are all numbered. No sparrow falls to the ground without your father. Therefore, whosoever will confess me. Jesus encourages a public profession of faith in him, and it starts with baptism. Beloved, at the top of your to-do list, once you come to faith in Christ, the very top item that Jesus said, this is the first thing I want you to do, he wants you to be baptized. Don't do anything else until you get baptized. That's at the top. Romans 10.9 That if thou shalt confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. What's Paul encouraging? What's in the heart and the overflow comes out in confession. It's not the confession that saves. It's the heart where the blood of Christ has been applied that faith resides that comes out through the lips. So confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart, because that's where the confession comes from, and you are saved. For with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation, and with the heart, belief is unto righteousness. 1 Timothy 6, Paul told Timothy, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto also thou art called, and that's an effectual call, among whom you have professed and made a profession among many witnesses. Timothy, you've made a public profession of faith in Christ. I want to encourage you not to be timid and afraid. Keep professing publicly in the appropriate and right context. Own Jesus Christ as your Lord. 1 John 4, 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God is dwelling with him and he with us. God. So the Bible is encouraging us that out of the abundance of our hearts where faith is to proclaim that and speak that publicly. And that's what's going to happen in baptism. Now it's a, it's a nonverbal uh, profession, but it follows a public profession. Just a simple profession like the Ethiopian unit. I believe with all my heart Jesus is everything He says He is, and He's that for me. You're ready to be baptized. You're ready now to follow that public profession with a portrayal of that profession in watery baptism. Perhaps we've done ourselves somewhat of a small disservice in having baptistries in buildings. Now, I'm not complaining, and... Don't misunderstand that somehow it's wrong to have a baptistry or we're wrong with the one right behind me. It's convenient in the winter. I don't have to get cold in the freezing weather. In January, it's really tough. I have baptized in January outside. It was no pleasure whatsoever physically. There was pleasure in what was happening. I've heard stories years ago of how a church would get in their cars and drive to the river, a river where boats are everywhere. People are fishing and swimming, and they would walk out into the water, and all of a sudden, one by one, the boats would turn off. As the minister got in position with the candidate and raised his hand, boats went silent. All eyes were on what was about to happen. And what happened? A public profession non-verbally was made to the Lordship of Christ and someone who's going to follow Jesus Christ in baptism. Now again, there is no... Sin and doing it inside, and it'll be public, it'll be demonstrated to every eye that's here. But the point I'm making is simply, baptism is a public declaration. Jesus is mine, and I am His, all by His divine, sovereign grace. Number two, baptism gives you a new identity. At least it symbolizes that. Listen to the language of identity in union. 
This baptism is going to visibly display a union with Jesus Christ that also embraces a new identity. You're going to be disunited from something. I'll show you that in a minute. And you're going to be united to something. The grave that you go into symbolized in that moment, symbolically you're disunited from something in the past, and now you're united as you come up in new life to something for the rest of your eternity. That's glorious. Listen to the language. Know you not that so many of us as we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into His death. Verse 4, therefore we are buried with Him. The word is soon thopto. Soon means with, together. There's union. Thopto is inter, not inter, inter. That's what you, you put a corpse in the grave. You put him all the way into the grave. You've been buried, united in some way with the symbolism of baptism. Now, baptism does not have the power to regenerate or give you a new heart. Internally, there's nothing happening in terms of salvation in baptism, but it is symbolizing a reality that it happened to every believer at this church and to the believers here at this church if you followed that faith with baptism, which is going to symbolize this reality of union. Verse 5, for if, for if we have been planted together, again the prefix soon, which is with, joined. If we've been united and joined together, how? First by faith in Jesus Christ, then followed by the symbolism of that union with a visible display of being united to Christ. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Go down in the water, symbolizing death with Christ. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse 8, now if we be dead with Christ soon, together, we believe we also shall live with Him. Union. Everything in the Bible is hanging on union with Christ. Your salvation, your future, all that you are is hanging by the strong steel cord of a union that cannot be severed. That union is displayed beautifully and wonderfully to all that watch by going under the water in death and coming out of the water in newness of life. The word likeness in verse 5 carries the idea that this union means a new identity. The nuance there is identity. To identify with someone. That's what we do publicly at baptism. I'm identifying with Jesus Christ because He's identified with me. Now this new identity means, again, that something is going to be stripped away symbolically that has already happened and there's going to be a new union that's formed. Symbolically because that's happened at the time of faith. We're united to Christ by faith through baptism, which means baptism is going to display disunion with a visible, dramatic presentation. Paul has covered this in chapter 5, where he gives us two men. Both have the name Adam. One is the first Adam, one is the second Adam. And the first Adam is the figure of him that is to come. These two men have two families. And what the first Adam did, he did it for all of his family. And what the second Adam did, he did it for all of his family. You see this beginning in verse 12 of Romans 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, at first reading, it sounds like what Paul is saying is this. Well, Adam was a sinner, and we sinned too. Now, that's true, but that's not what he's saying. When did the sentence of death and condemnation pass on you? At the moment Adam sinned, every person in his family had the charge of death imputed to them at that singular moment. That's what Paul is saying. He's going to start in verse 13 to unpack this reality so that we understand, yes, we're sinners, but we sinned in Adam at the moment he sinned because he represented us. We'll call that a past 
historical representation. What Adam did, you did. What Adam did was counted to you. That representation in the past, when does it become present possession? When does it become your present possession? At the moment of your first birth. You received that just condemnation in Adam, and his nature, his name, became yours. His rebellion is your rebellion. His sin is your sin. It was imputed at that moment, and then, at birth, you took on that sin nature of Adam, and you started living it out in a rebellious, wayward lifestyle. No matter what it looked like on the outside, it may, may have been very clean on the outside, it looked real good, or it may have been very dirty, and all could say, well, that, that's dirt. No matter. Every single human being, because he represented all of humanity, the sentence of death was passed at that moment. Look how Paul explains it. We'll just get a couple of verses. Verse 13. For until the law was in the world, but sin... For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them which had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Why are people di- why did babies die? Surely babies died. Some of them likely died in the womb. Well, there was no law. How can you impute sin when there's no law? Why were they dying? Because the sentence of death was passed on them. In Adam. Already condemned, already judged. At conception, the sin nature came. And even though there was no revelation from God, Genesis 3, Thou shalt not eat of the knowledge of the tree and good of evil. Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt have no gods before me. Between the two, no revelation, no command of God, but everybody's dying. Why? What's Paul saying? They sinned in Adam. The sentence of death was passed. And then they received the sin nature. And death was reigning. And then Paul continues to unpack these two men. And then when he finishes his parenthetical expression, to explain verse 12, he says this in verse 18. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Condemnation was passed on all humanity even before we were born. Even so, mark the words, even so. By the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, when he disobeyed, you were made a sinner. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Somebody says, "I I don't know if I like that. I mean, I I don't like it that Adam represented me. I don't think I want that. Well, then you don't get the representation of the one whose obedience and righteousness became yours. Why? Because you were in him. You see the parallel? We can't miss this. The second Adam. Who is his family? All that he represented. Who does he represent? Three ways this union is spoken about in the Bible. First, predestinarian union. Placed in Christ before the world began. Ephesians 4. In the mind and purpose of God, He put us in Christ. The elect of God. Past historical redemptive union. When Christ became incarnate, guess what? You were in Him. So when He lived righteously, you were in Him. You were living righteously by union. When He died... His death was counted for you. What does that mean? He died for the penalty of sin and He satisfied the wrath of God, which means all that were in Him, because that's the parallel Paul is making in the chapter. We cannot get away from that. All that were in Him, the wrath of God was satisfied for them. When when does this union become present possession? I remember the first union, it's at the first birth. But the union in Christ is second birth. When you experience second birth and come to faith in Christ, you're united to Christ by faith. And now in baptism, you're going to portray 
the meaning. You're going to go in the grave because we, when He died and went in the grave, it was for you because you were in Him. You were baptized into Christ. You were baptized into His death. What does that mean? When He died, His death was counted as yours. Why? You were in Him incarnationally. Now in present possession, you're in Christ. Baptism shows that. When He went into the grave, when you go into the grave of the water, He went into the grave for you. It was counted for you. When He come up out of the grave, what was that an expression of? His righteousness. His righteousness was counted to you. There it was counted in the mind and purpose of God, but in present possession, it's imputed at the time of faith. And baptism is a portrayal, a dramatic presentation of union and identity with Jesus Christ. Because God was in the world reconciling sinners to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. If God says He was not imputing your trespasses to all those that were in Christ, His family, rest assured, He will never impute it to you. That can only make sense through a union that included a particular redemption and a penal substitution that was for all those that were in Christ Jesus. Nothing else will make sense out of that. So what is happening concerning this new identity? The name of Adam is stripped from your life. And you take on a new name, the name of Jesus. Why do we say that? I'm going to raise my hand because that's what the ministers did before me. I suppose you could leave your hands down. And I'm going to say what Jesus commanded us to say. Baptizing them in the name. In the name. Why does God want us to say that? Because Jesus is going to pronounce the name of God that became clear in the New Testament. And here it is. God the Father. God the Son. And God the Holy Ghost. That is the name of God. You are being stripped of that old name and that old rebellion, symbolically because it's happened to be so, it's true. And now you're going to take on the name of the Trinitarian God and all that that name implies and is throughout Scripture. He is now yours and you belong to Him. And baptism is going to portray that. Think about your own identity and your own God, well not God-given name, parent-given name. How that has shaped you and directed you. How many times do you answer to your name in a week? How often do you write that name? How often do you pull out your identification card and your name is on the card? It is shaping you. It is directing you. Baptism ought to be the marking point that separates from the world and the name of Christ and gives shape and direction to all that we are. Because the old Adam nature has been stripped. Go down in the grave of watery baptism, portraying that. We come out to newness of life. And what is this newness of life? I'm identified with Christ. There's something that happens in our culture in cyberspace called identity theft. Maybe you've experienced that. There where someone takes your name, social security number, takes your bank account, and they wipe you out. They steal from you. Beloved, The devil practices identity theft every day. He wants you to forget about your new identity and the new jersey you're wearing, which has Christ's name on it. And he wants to lure you away by stealing your identity and causing you to think you get your identity from somewhere else. You know the implication of that? As soon as you get your identity from some other source, you start to get meaning. You get purpose. It shapes you. It influences you. Whatever you try to get your identity from, and say, that's who I am, then you're expecting that object to give you only what Christ can give you, which is fulfillment and purpose and meaning and joy. And how often do you and I allow the devil to cause us to wander away from who we are in Christ wander to a different name, a different doctrine, a different teaching that spoils us and takes us captive away from Christ. 
Beloved, let this renewal sink down deep in us. We have a new name. As the songwriter says, take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. It will joy and comfort give you. So take it then, where'er you go. Precious name. Oh, how sweet. Hope of earth and joy of heaven. So you have a new name. The old Adamic name in nature, your old father Adam, the old man, is gone. He's stripped. Now you're a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What's the first thing that passed? That old name. What's become new? Jesus is the name that you've been baptized in. It's the name that was spoken over your life in baptism. And it's the name now that's to give you direction. So this is a time of renewal for us that's been baptized. As we watch this, ask yourself, is that the name that identifies me? Or have I tried to get my identity in my success, in my marriage, in my family, in my children, in something I do? And that is really shaping my life? Or is it Jesus Christ? So God is calling you to change today, if that's the case. Surely all of us have room to change in that respect. Number three, not only a new identity, but a new freedom. It says in verse five, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, knowing this. Now this freedom... It's going to be found in verse 7. For he that is dead is free from sin is a freedom that connects itself with this new purpose. So let me hit reverse just a minute and slide in the new purpose that's going to give the power for the new freedom. So we see this purpose again reading in verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, what should we do? Walk in newness of life. What's this new life? The glory of God. Jesus was raised by the glory of God, for the glory of God, to the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2. He set Him at His own right hand, giving Him glory. Now, if we follow the pattern of Paul's thought and what baptism is saying, again, symbolizing a reality that takes place in the new birth and coming to faith in Christ, but symbolizing that new identity, that new purpose, what is he saying? Like Christ is alive to the glory of God, now you be alive to the glory of God. Now, that's in two ways. First, Everything in our life is to be shaped by the glory of God. It's to be so pervasive that Paul says it actually should impact the way you eat. Now, I'm not going to go to what you eat. That, that's between you and the Lord, what you eat. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatsoever therefore you do, whether you eat or drink, do all, which is eating and drinking, to the glory of God. This new life purpose is to be so pervasive that it affects how I ate breakfast this morning. I mean, what does that mean? Do I make sure I don't swallow it whole? Do I need to chew it a certain number of times and that's going to give God glory? No, the context of that passage means that if my brother... His conscience is going to be offended if I eat that wonderful banquet steak and drink that nice goblet of wine. I will not drink it to the glory of God the Father. I will not eat it for the glory of God the Father because God's glory means more to me than a piece of meat that comes from a cow. I say it like that because sometimes I just want to say, I am so pathetic sometimes, spiritually. I don't, I don't mean I'm... I'm groveling and, and being uh, thinking of myself other than I'm in Christ. But it's like, I can't, can't believe you wanted a piece of a cow over considering loving your brother. But that's just how sin takes us sometimes, isn't it? 
So when you eat and drink, to love God with your heart means you love your neighbor and say, I'm not going to eat that. If you need it, I'll give it to you. God's going to provide. I trust Him. This new life for which your baptism marked you off from the world and you declared to the world, I follow the risen Christ. I want to live for His glory. How are you doing today? This is a time of renewal. When you see this baptism, ask yourself and be honest. Say, I'm just going to confess to myself, Lord, I haven't done this at all. In fact, I got baptized and shortly after I just fizzled out. God is speaking to you this morning. He is calling you back to the pathway of what you professed and what you united. Your union didn't go away because you fizzled out. If you're His, it's not going away. And perhaps God is using this message to stir and inflame again that union that is vital. What does that mean? It's necessary. You can't live spiritually without it. If you're disunited from Christ, you're dead forever. One with Himself, I cannot die. Baptism portrays that. This new purpose is so pervasive, it affects what you say. Now this is going to hit everyone in this room, starting with who's behind the pulpit. Whatsoever you do, whether it be in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father by Him. Lord, I thank You for this. I'm about to say this. Your words. Now, James clearly tells us, if you didn't have any other sin, which we do, all of us sin with the mouth. That, that's probably the, the biggest challenge. Our thought life, because we don't even have to say anything to sin there, and then what comes out of the mouth in our relationships. So Paul in Colossians 3, in about the 17th verse, connects the glory the name of Christ with what we say, and then he goes into relationships. Wives, you be this. Husbands, you be this. Children, you be this. Parents, you be this. Employees, you be this. Employers, you be this. Church, you be this. And all of that involves what? Words. Words. See, baptism is not portraying church. I just want to tell you, I'm going to have no more problem with my words anymore. No, it's saying I'm committing myself to faith and repentance again and again. I want my words to honor Jesus Christ. Even when there are words of admonition and rebuke, and those words are found in the Bible, that those are good things for us. My new life's purpose means my, my mouth, my lips. I need to change the way I speak, and that's a lifelong process. Oh, how many times in emotion things come out, and what does God expect you to do? Repent and confess, and recognize your union with Christ by faith. And keep turning, keep turning. This new purpose is so pervasive, it's to affect the way you suffer. Imagine that. Yet if any man suffers a Christian, 1 Peter 4, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God on this behalf, which means in this way, how? Suffering. God says He's so deeply concerned about His glory. I'm going to sustain you because the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory is going to be resting on you when you're not ashamed. And in your suffering, you're still trusting Christ. And you're rejoicing. He's going to be with you. The Spirit of God is going to come in a manifest way and it's going to rest on you so that you can give God glory in your pain and your suffering. That is hard stuff for me. Is it for you? I need the Spirit of God to rest. I need Him to encamp. I need Him to, to set up shop. But the Spirit of Christ has already done so because you're united to Him by faith and your baptism. And this baptism is going to express that visually. You're going to watch it. So be renewed. Remember and reflect on what it means to live for the glory of God in our suffering with our words, with our food, and with the way you use your body, beloved. In our culture where everything is sexualized, it's just true. We need to remember 1 Corinthians 6.20. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, little less, 
That's your spirit. Which are God's. Glorify God with the way you use your body. Fornication. Impurities. Is like joining yourself to a harlot. Why does Paul use the language of union? You're joining yourself. While Christ has joined you, you're joining yourself like joining to a harlot. Remember, you're united. He's with you for your good. So glorify God in the way you use your body, but then in your soul, which means just everything inwardly. That, that really hangs it all up, doesn't it? You could say your soul, your spirit, your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your affections, your will. It means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. You say, but what happens when I fail? Did anybody fail this week to use your body in any way that we're supposed to use it? Your thoughts, your soul. Well, that's the beauty of the symbolism of baptism. You were in Christ. His death was counted your death. His burial was counted your burial. And His resurrection and righteousness is counted to you forever. And the way we keep experiencing that is through acknowledgement, saying, Lord, I've sinned against heaven and thy sight. I'm not worthy to be called thy son. Oh, but beloved, don't say, make me one of your hired servants. He'll say, none of that language in my house. You're a son of the high God. You come into the camp. You come in rejoicing. Kill the fatted calf. Get the ring on the finger. Put the robe on. You're my son. That's what Jesus purchased. We have been united to the fullness of God. All of His fullness is ours. And it comes to us like waves upon an ocean, John 1 says. Of His fullness have we received and received and received. Grace upon grace upon grace. And you don't deserve it and I don't either. That's the wonder of grace. Now, corollary truth to this, this new life purpose for the glory of God. Now here's the second one we need to talk about. This one, it gets a little more personal. In the minds of the apostle, they always thought and wrote about being united by faith with Christ through baptism as being united to the body called the church. This newness of life should not be disconnected with being a member of a local church. This needs to be said in a culture of post-COVID Christianity where loads of people have not come back to church. And in a culture where commitment is at an all-time low. The Bible says being united to Christ in baptism means being united, united to the community called church. And I get why people would not want to do it. I get it. I've, I've been through some pretty difficult things in church life. And guess what? People have been some through some pretty difficult things with me in church life. Maybe some of you. But I want to tell you something, brother. Jesus has never done me wrong. He's the head. He has a body. And He says, get with it and join it. It's His body. Acts chapter 2. You heard it read this morning. And those that gladly received the Word were baptized. Who was baptized? Only those that received the Word. Because if you can't receive it, you don't get baptized. That was all those that effectually called. Because the promise is to you, to your children, those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so those that were pierced by the Word, they were convicted by the Word. They asked men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent, be baptized for the remission of sins. Remission means to be released like a prisoner or to be forgiven. The baptism doesn't remit. It's union by faith and repentance to Christ that we receive forgiveness. Baptism is the symbol that follows it. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a believing, unbaptized Christian. You can't find it. You can't find months and days and years between believing and baptism. You might find a day to find water because you needed much water to baptize. That's why John was in Enon because there was much water there because you got to get them under, so I guess they had to travel there, some practical things. But that day, 3,000 were baptized, and they were added to them. 
So when they were baptized, they portrayed union with Christ. And what happened? They were united to Christ by second birth and faith in Christ. Then they portrayed it in baptized, baptism, and then they were added to them. Who are the them? Acts 1, 13 through 15. The disciples were in the upper room praying. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, parenthesis, the number of the names were about 120, close parenthesis. There were 120 names on the books, on the roll, and they were added to them. That's one way we know that. The second way is in verse 47. These people who covenanted together through gospel baptism and through local church membership, they were praising God and having favor with the people, and the Lord added to them, no, it says the church, daily such as should be saved. What church? The church at Jerusalem, which had a membership role of 120 people, about. Now, there might have been other Christians that were going about, like the Ethiopian eunuch, which is going to come later, that went back and churches were established to fulfill the Great Commission, because the Commission is about establishing churches. It's not about evangelism on the beach where people go their way. You can evangelize on the beach, but the goal is the beach. The goal is to establish churches. Matthew 28. So God was adding to the church. He was adding to them. And He adds through faith and repentance and then following gospel baptism. Now that requires all of us to be renewed. Because I can say, well, you know, I am a member here, but how am I doing as a member? That's even a deeper question, isn't it? I'm on the books, but you won't get anything out of me, right? You're joined to Christ. All that He is is yours. He says, follow me, and follow me with a crucified band of believers where you commit to them because you're committing to the head through them. This is a message that needs to be spoken in a culture of American Christianity that's aloof and loose and says, I don't need to be. I can worship God from home. I can watch Him on the, on the, on the video, the screen. I can live stream. You can, but let me tell you something. You can't obey God and do it. What do I mean by that? Did you sin by watching a live stream? No. If you replace local church with that, you're not obeying God. Listen clearly. Replacement, not watching. I have watched live stream from this very church when I was in another state. And, Lord willing, I'll do it again. When it becomes replacement for local church connection, you're not doing the will of God. So we just need to understand what baptism is, a new walk with God for the glory of God. And God says, now plug in because this is where my glory is going to be seen. Or as the text preacher, Ephesians 3.20 Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. Where will that end? Amen. And I, I know there's a universal church, but by and large, most of the New Testament references to ecclesia is local, called out, gathered, assembly together, just like you're doing. So be committed. Be connected. And be glorifying God through the body where life can be hard and difficult with sinners who are still progressively moving toward heaven. Now, the freedom, and we close on this one, the freedom. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. There's a symbolism of a reality that's taking place. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth no longer we should serve sin. Henceforth should not serve sin. Because... Because he that is dead is freed from sin. Baptism is going to display publicly you're free. You're free. You've been stripped, you've been freed from Adam's old nature. You're a new creature in Christ. Baptism displays that. Sin's curse, you just sang, lost its grip on me. Why? I think they're getting this song maybe from this language. For He is mine, and I am His. What's that? That's union. In what way are we free from sin? That language has the potential to be deeply misunderstood. Because you're, you're thinking like I am. Well, this last week, I didn't, 
I didn't feel like I was free from sin. There are three dimensions to the freedom of sin that we will all experience as Christians. One is immediate, immediate freedom regarding sin's penalty. It's gone. You're free from its penalty. How do we know that? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now, right now, right here, no condemnation for them that are what? In Christ Jesus. That's where it happens. Baptism is only portraying that. In Christ Jesus, you stand forgiven. There is no condemnation now or forever. Right now, you're free from Adam's curse. And his name has been stripped. Let it be stripped from your life. It's been stripped. Number two, future freedom. One day, sin's presence will be gone. Then your union with Christ will come to fruition in such a way that John says, Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be, future. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Why is that true, John? Because we shall see Him as He is. You cannot see Christ as He is. You cannot see God as He is unless sin's presence is gone. God will not allow a single sinner that has the presence of sin even like smoke on the garments before His presence. So what's going to happen? At your resurrection, gone. Future presence of sin will be stripped forever. That's where we're going. But today, the freedom that Paul is talking about is freedom from, from sin in a way where it dominates us. So sin now is progressively, we're progressively experiencing freedom from sin. Paul doesn't mean sin is gone from your life, so you cannot do it. We've proved in the last week that that's not our experience. But he uses the language. Listen to the language of this chapter. Let not sin reign, rule. Don't let it be king over your life. Don't let it have dominion. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You're not under law. You're under grace. So, Kingdom, kings, rule, reign, dominion. You're free from sin's total dominion. And what was this dominion under the reign and rule of Adam and sin? Well, verse 6 implies we were servants of sin. If henceforth our baptism displaying, portraying something that's happened to us. It was henceforth, we've been born again, baptism showing this reality of union, henceforth, we should not be slaves to sin. Which means what? Before that union, you were the servants and you were enslaved in the darkness and the chains of that darkness. And what we could liken to addiction, you were addicted to sin. Habitual, Cannot stop it. You could not stop. Incarcerated, imprisoned, enslaved to sin. Well, what would that mean? I mean, how was I enslaved? Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it, sin, in the lust thereof. The way we were enslaved to sin, we were enslaved to lust. When verse 3 says, or verse 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Means prior to our union with Christ, we were dead in sin. We were slaves to sin, which means we were slaves to our own desires. And Ephesians Two spells that out even more specifically when it says we were quickened who were dead in sins. Paul says, you hath he quickened, you've made a life, you've been united to Christ, you were dead in trespasses, in sins, now you're dead to sin. Well, Paul, what does it mean to be dead in sin? Well, you remember as Paul says, you're under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, and you had your lifestyle where your whole purpose was to fulfill the lust of the flesh. You lived for lust. And you tried to fulfill your own desires. That's what Paul defines as being dead in sin. 
slaved, incarcerated, captured by my own fallen Adamic desires, whereby I try to use everything, every person, every event, every job, everything that is in my life, I try to use it to gratify my own lust. That's what it means to serve and be addicted to sin. Somebody says, I, I still feel, I still feel like sin sometimes gets a grip on me. Well, according to verse 12, 11 and 12, the reason is you have not come to grips with the reality of who you are in Christ. So the, the therefore on the first ten verses, there are no commands about union with Christ. As one writer said, it's like Paul is now safe to give a command because commands don't happen without union. So now it's safe after he talks about union and how the branches bear the fruit by connection with the vine. Now we can talk about keeping commands. And that's a right order. Likewise, reckon, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Why should you think that way? Because it's true, beloved. Have you come to grips with the reality of who you are in Christ? If not, if you lose sight of that, then what will happen? You may come to grips again with sin's dominion in your life. So Paul says if that happens, if you're under the grip and dominion of sin again, guess what? You let it happen. So don't let it happen. Verse 12, by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, don't let it happen. Now, if that's true, if being dead in sin is living a life of servitude to the lust of the flesh, then what it means, what does it mean to be dead to sin? There must be something that's the exact opposite. Right? It means, of course, we've got to deny sin, right? To be united with Christ doesn't mean sin is gone yet, it means it must be denied. The lust of the flesh must be denied. Paul mentions that over and over in the Bible. I still have desires that are fallen. They're still present with me. Sin is still present with me. I know that in my flesh there's no good thing because in my flesh there's still some yearning to gratify my lust with things of this world. How will I ever fight and let not sin have dominion? It's when the supremacy of Christ, our union with Him, our knowing Him, His fullness for us, becomes that which begins to satisfy my heart in such a way that it starts to push out self-gratification. I wish I could say, when I, when I make these statements, this is not just a filler in the sermon. Well, here's a good place to say this, just to, you know, maybe... Maybe let the people know I'm having a struggle. I'm saying the truth, beloved. I wish I could say I don't ever struggle again with selfishness, but I do. And you would be shocked at the amount, I'm sure. How can I ever live in the light of my union with Christ? It's when Christ and His Word become the supreme direction and, the, and, and that which brings great contentment to my soul, can I then kill the lust of the flesh? Colossians 3.1, union. If you then be risen with Christ, what's that? Union with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting on the right hand of the Father, because He went down to the grave, He's up. He's seated by the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? For you are dead. What do you mean? You're dead to sin. Sin has lost its dominion, not its presence, dominion. And progressively, through being raised with Christ, progressively you can, you can fight it. If you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God, it's hidden, which means it's secure. Nothing can sever you. Because you're united to Christ in the heavens. He quickened us together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ, Ephesians 2. And we're seated together in the heavenlies with Christ because we have union. And baptism is going to convey that, portray it. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you will appear with Him in glory. Now, here's the upshot. Well, if I'm dead to sin, okay, 
I'm just dead to it. Now here's where the commitment is. Therefore, mortify, kill, and put to death sin. You see how that works? You're dead to sin, so give sin the death nail. Kill it. I like to sometimes speak as the young people do. I'm sure it irritates some young people. Kill it, man! Kill it! Why? You've been baptized. You've been united. Get with it. Lock in. Quit playing with life. Your life is short. See, the mortification of sin is because you're free from its grip and you've been united, you've been married to another that you would bring forth fruit to God. What are you waiting for? You have everything you need. You have all of Christ. You have the whole Christ. You have life. You have everything you need to start killing sin. So do it. Don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 17, chapter 6. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. You did have that old rebellious Adam, Adamic nature. You did have his name. You did wear his name on your jersey. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin. Immediate freedom from condemnation. In the future, freedom from presence. But right now, freedom from sin's grip. How? You obeyed from the heart. Here's where this happens. The form of doctrine means the teaching that embraces the sum and the substance of the Christian religion for which you were given over to, given over to the power of, is the word delivered. That's passive. God gave you over to the sum and the substance of the entire Christian living. What is it? Or shall I say, who is it? It's the supremacy of Jesus Christ to rule and reign and to be your Savior, your God, your Helper, your Rescuer, your Deliverer, your Precious One. He delivered you over to Him. And now from the heart, when you saw His supremacy, what happened? He broke the power of canceled sin. He set the prisoner free. And your baptism gives a dramatization of that. So, beloved, as you witness this baptism, some of you were baptized long, long ago. But in Paul's mind, when we understand the meaning of baptism, then we know that what has happened to us that preceded that baptism is the power of freedom from the grip of sin into the power of the grip of God's amazing grace. I don't know about you, but that just thrills my soul. I need His grace. And I know you do too. So as we watch this, reflect, renew, and remember. Let's pray. Father, thank You for baptism and the powerful message that it sends. We know that internally it does not bring about a regeneration of the soul. It is reflecting powerfully that our souls have been created anew, our wills have been renewed, and you brought us out of the darkness, being dead in sin, where we could do nothing but sin, because that's all we wanted to do, is follow our own way. Thank you, God, that you placed us in Christ, and what he did at Calvary, he did for his entire family. And now we come into present possession of that reality when we repent and we trust you and we believe and we declare, I believe in Jesus Christ with all my heart and I want to follow him in gospel baptism, live for the glory of your name and I want to be a follower of him through your people. I unite with a church and there I will serve you for the rest of my days until my breath is taken away. Lord, thank you for what Paul could not but express almost in every word and every line he wrote about our union with Christ. May it grip our souls. May we experience more of this freedom. And if we have lost this freedom and sin has once again dominated our lives, which it certainly can, and it has, 
then may we recognize when we watch this baptism who Christ is for us and what he is for us and how he longs for fellowship with us because he died to have us. And may that power be the power that once again renews our minds, renews our faith, and puts us back on the pathway of a holiness and a godliness where sin is no longer loved. We are dead to it. It's distasteful to us. It is disinteresting now. And when we do it, we want to confess it. Make all this a reality as we sing this final hymn. In Jesus' name, amen.